So today, we're going to be going through, you guessed it, the book of 1 Peter. We've been doing that for the past five or six weeks now, I think, a little more. Um, we're going to be looking through verses, in, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, we're going to be looking through verses 20 and 21. Um, but before we do that, I'd like to talk a little bit about what we've, what we've heard preached on um, up to this point. So two weeks ago, um, Herb, Herb preached, and it, it was a great message on what it means to be holy. He talked about killing sin, obedience in the life of a believer. And uh, last week, Chase um, went through verses 17 and 19. And actually, I'm going to read verses 17 and 19 and then go into 20 and 21 today so that we have a little bit of context going in. So um, if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to start in verse 17 of the first chapter of 1 Peter. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown, and this is what we're going to be talking about tonight, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that uh, your spirit would move tonight, that uh, you would take these words and uh, use them, that I would not... Um, shine through, but that only you would shine through God, that your word would be made clear, uh, and that in the end you would be glorified through all we hear tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so basically last week Chase was talking about what it means to be reverent, what it means to um, fear the Lord, and then in the end that that should affect how we value Christ's sacrifice, that we don't want to stomp on the sacrifice, on the blood of Christ as a Christian. So a lot of talk the past two weeks about obedience, valuing God, reverence, holy living. Um, This week, we're going to be talking a lot about God's plan, God's plan for redemption um, specifically. So the three major points that I really want to hit on, um, and and these are are overarching themes, and I think the, the main message would be that God's sovereign plan and work um, in the world to, uh, throughout history um, has come about, this is a long-winded way of saying this, but that he's redeemed a people is basically the, the summary of our message tonight. But we're going to hit on three points, that Christ was known by God, Christ was known in history, and Christ is known by his people. So let's jump into the first section of the text Um, It starts out, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So I'm going to really, we're going to hone in on, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So why is this phrase important? I think it's important for three reasons. And by examining this text, along with the rest of God's revealed word, we can draw conclusions on what what this section of scripture indicates. I think a lot of times... um, 
we have the tendency when we're reading on our own to zoom in and make it directly applicable. We take a line. I remember doing that when I was younger. I would just flip open, uh, and it was like some mystical experience, right? I'd flip open my Bible and then zoom in on one, one text and then make it work for whatever I, I wanted in that moment. Um, I think a lot of times when we look at Scripture, Scripture is like a beautiful tapestry And as Christians, we don't want to walk up to the tapestry so that we're inches away and we just see, uh, you know, a couple colors in our face and we can't make out anything discernible. We want to be able to step back and see what the rest of Scripture has to say um, about the text that we're looking at. So that's why I I really appreciate um, what Pastor Dave says a lot. We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So there's going to be a lot of accompanying Scripture tonight with the text that we're looking at. So, firstly, um, I think that this phrase, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, indicates the unity and love shared by the Father and Son in eternity past. Second, I think it implies the deity of Christ, that Jesus was truly God. And thirdly, I think it affirms the covenant of redemption made between the persons of the Trinity. And we're going to really dig into that one uh, later on. So, in 1 Peter 20, um, I use the ESV version um, that uses the, the word foreknown right there in the beginning. Um, Christ was foreknown, while the King James Version uses the term foreordained. Foreordained means to be appointed or decreed beforehand. Foreordained means um, basically that there was a plan set in place. So it gives us a little more um, understanding on what exactly we're talking about. So Christ was chosen, he was known, he was loved. He was working with the Father before the foundation of the world. You know, if we look at the foreknowing, it actually reminds me of the first message that I did um, six or seven weeks back um, at the very start of Refuge um, in 1 Peter 1. There is this term foreknowledge in relation to the Father. So in verse 2 of chapter 1, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, in studying that, realize that we were talking about the, the foreknowledge of God the Father was also can be known as the, the loving, the forelove of the Father. So there's this intimate knowing. It's not a, um, yeah, I have an idea about that, or I have this vague knowledge, but it's an intimate knowledge, a loving um, way of, of interacting with what his plan is in the future. So what did this unity look like in eternity past? Well, let's go back to the phrase before the foundation of the world. It's a hard concept for our finite minds to grasp, I think um, reading books talking about God existing um, before we exist, we're so tethered to time as human beings, and we're so tethered to creation and our minds and our consciousness that when we think about God just existing on his own um, and being completely content with that, it's, it's, it's really mind-blowing. So I'm, I'm going to get into that here. Um, before time and space, matter, and all the rest of God's creation... Uh, God was alone, without time, without creation, nothing but God, content with his own majesty. And in John 17, 5, in his high priestly prayer, we see Christ referencing the love and unity he shared with the Father. So we have one God, one being of God, shared with, by three persons, right? So there is this, this um, mutual love that is shared in attorneys' past, this contentment that they find in each other. And, and what Christ says in John 17, 5 is, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the, foundation, before the world existed. 
So the Father, Son, and Spirit existed in complete unity in eternity past. That's, that's what we see in this text. Uh, that's why we see in this text that Christ was known or foreknown before anything was created. Before anything came into existence, there was a plan to be worked out. Christ had an eternal, loving relationship with the Father. There was a perfect communion. Between the three persons of the Trinity, there was this perfect communion. They didn't need anything else. They were completely fulfilled with each other. I really like what uh, Steve Lawson, an author and theologian, pastor, um, says. He says, God was not inwardly lonely or personally empty. He was entirely self-satisfied, self-content, and self-contained. So God did not create because of some limitation within himself. Instead, he created everything out of nothing in order to put his glory on display for the delight of his created beings, that they might declare his greatness. That's an amazing thought. God being eternally good, eternally content, eternally self-sufficient didn't need to create. Instead, he chose to. I agree with theologian Albert Barnes who says um, when God created man, the reason that God created man was to promote his honor and glory, not to promote his happiness, for he was eternally happy. Christians have the tendency to speak of God in a small way, way, almost as if we affect the happiness of God. Um, Obviously, we can't affect the emotions of God. God's emotions are not able to be changed in that way. But we, t- we talk about him in a way, I think in Christian circles, often I've heard um, that, that God is almost reliant on us making him feel fulfilled in some way. His happiness is not reliant on us. Um, so a lot of people think they, he needs us to choose him, He needs us to love him. He needs us to cherish him. He needs us to adore him in order for him to feel value or to feel worth. This is patently false. God is absolutely deserving of your worship, but he doesn't need it. God is absolutely deserving of your love, but he doesn't need it. He doesn't need you. He's not a uh, Tinkerbell-type figure that is only real when you believe in him enough. He's real regardless. Um... That's what a sovereign God um, does and is to us as believers, but he's just as real to those that reject him. He's powerful. He's a judge. He's Lord regardless. Um, If you believe him or not, you still need him. You were made to worship him, to give him glory, and we're by nature worshipers. So if you do not worship God, (laughs) my pen's taken off. Um, If you do not worship God, you'll find other things to fill your time worshiping. We must direct our worship to the God deserving of our praise. And the mere fact that he does not need us, but yet still desires and accomplishes our full salvation is mind-blowing. I want to repeat that. The mere fact that he does not need us, but yet still desires and accomplishes our full salvation should hit us hard. It should hit our hearts. The, The fact that a fully self-sustaining God has chosen to save you. Um, Wow. (laughs) It it hits me. Um, He chooses to be merciful when we deserve no mercy. He chooses to love us when we deserve no love. I believe that from this section we can see the deity of Christ as well when we're talking about him being foreknown. Um, We can see... That him being foreknown before creation is a direct reference 
to his godhood. For there was no one but God before the earth was created. And in verse 21 of our chapter today, he says that we are believers through him. He wields the power to save. No man has that power. We, we believe that through Christ, precise, we, we believe through Christ precisely because he is God. Going back to John 17, Christ mentions that he shared glory with the Father before creation. To share glory with the Father clearly shows there was a divine equality, meaning they both shared this equality in eternity past, a shared nature, a shared essence, will, and purpose. In John 8, Christ also states, before Abraham, I, I am, or before Abraham was, I am. The use of I am shows Christ was claiming divinity. When God says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, I believe it's a clear reference to the triune unity that was shared beforehand. They were working in creation, Father, Son, and Spirit. We have a, a triune creation occurring. Jesus was there. He was God. John 1 mentions that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Hebrews 1 states that through Christ, the world was created. He was an essential part of the creation process. I don't think we think about Christ that way often, him being an essential part of the created world. We think of him in a one-dimensional, he is, Christ is um, Savior. He came, died on a cross. We think in these simplistic terms um, because these same notes are hit in the church. And while they are great notes to hit, we need to know who Christ is. We need to um, expand our Christology and, and see him working all throughout Scripture. It goes back to that, that painting. We need to step back and see Christ in all of it, not in this little place um, isolated, even though it's a beautiful place. <laughs> though we don't know the intimate details of how exactly creation occurred, we do know that Christ was there, he was active, and he was God. Scripture attests to the fact that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So he was loved by God, he was God, and he was at the center of a redemptive plan designed by God. Theologians have often called this plan the Pactum Salutis, or Covenant of Redemption. So that's what we're going to talk about next. But before we talk about the Covenant of Redemption, um, I kind of want to give a brief overview on what covenant theology um, is, and, and really just the three covenants that, that most um, Christians will reference when we're talking about covenant theology. So we have three major covenants seen in Scripture, with smaller covenants being made within the broader ones. And, and also, I, I want to say, um, these covenants, while um, we can look at Scripture and see God making promises to his people throughout, um, the explicit terminology is not there. So we can see the Trinity all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament. We see it revealed more fully, right? But we don't have the term Trinity in there for us. So when, when we're dealing with theology and, and trying to create um, uh, or fill these areas of our theology, we need to use terms. And maybe those terms aren't necessarily right here in black and white, but, but we uh, seek to understand them um, in these ways. So anyway... Uh, Moving on, um, there, we were talked about the, the larger covenants, which we're going to be discussing. So a covenant, I want to define a covenant, is a solemn agreement or promise made between two or more parties. Um, I'm going to move on to the covenant of works. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, we're, we're going to mention these three first. The covenant of works, the covenant of grace, and the covenant of redemption, which is what we're going to spend um, most of our time on. 
The covenant of works was a covenant between God and Adam who represented all of humanity as their covenantal head. We see that in Romans 5 when he sinned, the whole world um, sinned with him. We all have sin nature because of him. He was required to obey God's command, but instead he sinned. He broke uh, what God had required of him, he, and he, um, obviously the ramifications of that were vast. All of humanity was now cursed with a sin nature. The covenant of grace was then enacted by God towards humanity. He made a promise. In this covenant, God said he would provide a way of salvation for his chosen people through Christ, through Christ as our new covenantal head and mediator. So he was going to send someone to crush the head of the serpent, and it would be the seed of woman. So he promises to Eve that in this covenant of grace that there would be a redeemer in the future. So these are two promises, two covenants that God makes at the, be- the very beginning um, involving God and man. The covenant of redemption is the agreement made before time began between the Father and Son. So it's an intra-trinitarian, uh, intra-trinitarian covenant. In this covenant, the Father plans to redeem a chosen people, and the Son agrees to provide salvation for those people through his incarnation and atoning work thereafter. He mediates the benefits of redemption to those that the Father gives him. The Spirit then applies these benefits to them. So the covenant of redemption is, is this beautiful thing that happened in eternity's pa- eternity past and outside of time, and this is, this is the plan of God for humanity. So they agree that the Son will be sent out by the Father, and he will accomplish salvation for a specific people. He will redeem a specific people. The beauty of Christ's redemptive work and plan can be seen in this passage. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest for the sake of you who through him are believers. So that leads us into our next section. In this section, we're going to look at Christ being known or Christ being revealed in history. So let's, let's start back at verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. So we're going to talk about um, the section, he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. The Son of God was made manifest. The Son, was made, ma- the Son made manifest was the redemptive plan of God coming to fruition. So obviously, this is the plan that they talked about in eternity's past coming to fruition. The covenant of redemption was being worked out in time. He came on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose. Um, I use that because uh, I've heard different pastors use that uh, same terminology. But when God has a purpose, he actually accomplishes the purpose. I think a lot of times when we hear that kind of terminology, um, I've heard a, a pastor use, you're made for a purpose, or with a purpose, for a purpose, um, but the problem is you can step outside of that purpose. And we don't see that with how God works. When he has purposes, he accomplishes those purposes. It may seem like a simple truth, but so often as Christians, they think that you can step in and out of God's purpose. And if God purposes, he accomplishes. So Christ was God. He stepped down into creation. The idea that God would condescend and live as a man, a lowly creature, that is a wild occurrence. I think that um, 
at least for me, I was convicted studying this past week and, and not reflecting enough on God becoming man. Um, just the, uh, the humility of that, to become one of your created being, beings. And, and actually, we're going to get to a quote that I think is really beautiful and, and helps us to, to sort of grasp that. Martin Luther also says that the reality is beyond human understanding, the idea of the incarnation of God coming and becoming a child um, and becoming man. I really like what Sam Storm has to say on this topic, and um, his quote here is that Christ was conceived by the union of divine grace and human disgrace. He who breathed the breath of life into the first man is now himself a man breathing his first breath. The king of kings now sleeping in a cow pen. The creator of oceans and seas and rivers afloat in the womb of his mother. God sucking his thumb. The alpha and omega learning his multiplication tables. He who was once surrounded by the glorious stereophonic praise of adoring angels now hears the lowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep, the stammering of bewildered shepherds. He who spoke the universe into being now coos and cries omniscient deity counting his toes. From the robes of eternal glory to the rags of swaddling clothes, the omnipresent spirit whose being fills the galaxies confined to the womb of a peasant girl, infinite power learning to crawl. I really like that quote. I know it's, it's very long, but I just feel that it's beautiful and really encapsulates um, just what God did in becoming a child and coming to the, to the world and being made manifest. It really puts into perspective the loving willingness of the Son to be made manifest so that many may come to know God. 1 Timothy 3.16 offers an elegant description of the purpose of Christ and his work. It says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I mean, that's beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful summary, and, uh, and I love that here we're, we're talking about Christ coming, being affirmed by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed by nations, but believed on in the world, and that connects great with, with our text today, that we can only believe because of Christ's work. We're we only capable to believe because of Christ's work and taken up into glory. Now, moving on, what does this section mean when it mentions the last times? So we look at verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the last times were inaugurated when Christ came. His incarnation, ministry, death, resurrection, all marked the beginning of the last days. A new covenant, a new outpouring, and a fulfillment of prophecy came with Christ in the last days. Peter says that the end times are at hand in chapter 4 of this letter. The writer of Hebrews also references the last days in his epistle. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So that connects great with, with what we've been talking about previously. In these last days he has spoken to us, so we've got the timing right. The son has come. He's, he's spoken to us. Whom was appointed heir of all things. So he has this power, this, um, uh, this authority through whom the world was created. And that goes back to what we were talking about before with 
um, the initiation of creation being a triune act. So Christ is God's revealed word. God spoke creation into existence through Christ, and he spoke through Christ during his earthly ministry to accomplish redemption. It's amazing. So in these last times, who did Christ come for? For whom was he made manifest? For whom was this incarnation? This was all for the sake of his people. In our text tonight, Peter is saying that Christ's work was for a people. He says he was made manifest for the sake of you. Remember, Peter is writing here to the elect exiles. Uh, We find that in verse 1. He's speaking to believers, a specific people. Or if you were in Christ today, Christ came for your sake. For the sake of you, an undeserving sinner. He was made manifest for his sheep. So you are a sheep. He died for his sheep. He accomplished salvation for his sheep. And by the grace of God, we are his chosen sheep. And that's worth celebrating. I want to go to John chapter 10 and and look at this a little bit more. So John chapter 10, verse 27, if you have your Bible. Starting in verse 27, chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This when I really first studied this verse, it changed me in a lot of ways because, um, not surprisingly, uh, this hadn't really been taught on very well um, in my past experience with teachers and, and, and pastors. But my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So this knowledge that God has, this intimate knowing, it's the same type of knowledge that we see when, when God foreknows, Right? This intimate knowing. He knows them. And it's a, it's a loving knowing at the same time. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. Now that's, he, him being able to give them eternal life is huge. It, no one but God can give eternal life. So Christ is, is affirming that I am divine. He's, you know, without saying it, he's saying it. Uh, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So they can't be taken away. Once Christ saves, he continues, um, uh, and, and you will persevere. He keeps you. So while looking at this, Jesus, Jesus clearly shows us that he knows them, that he has knowledge of them. He's able to provide eternal life to them because he's God. They won't be lost. They won't see destruction. They will see glory because Christ saves and keeps his sheep. 1 John 3.8 states that the reason the Son of God appeared or was made manifest was to destroy the works of the devil. So if we allow these scriptures to work hand in hand, we can see that Christ's destruction of the devil's work and his salvific work for people are synonymous, meaning he destroyed the devil's work by providing salvation for all who believe, for every tribe, tongue, and nation, for both Jew and Greek. The gospel going forth bound the devil. He no longer has free reign over all the pagan nations. There was a change that occurred with Christ's coming. At the end of this section, it states that through him, we are believers. Jesus is the foundation for every good gift and spiritual benefit we receive. He's our mediator. Through him, the Holy Spirit 
is a gift received. Faith is a gift received. Repentance is a gift received through him, through Christ. Essential blessings are bestowed to those who are Christ. So seeing Christ as, as this mediator and this um, basically the one who makes it possible for all these things to occur, there's a... Um, uh, in, in Romans, Paul talks about your kindness leads us to repentance. Um, I, I think about that, that, that Christ created the, uh, the atmosphere for us to be able to, or at least the, the change in the world for us to be able to repent, to usher in the Holy Spirit and allow him to work. It's an amazing gift. So moving on, he was, I, I'm going to move on to uh, our next section, which is in verse 21. So, so going back, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. We've talked about that. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I want to focus on this um, here at the end. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The faith and hope of believers should rest in the work of God. The raising of Christ from the dead and the glory he was given subsequently is where we find our peace. If not for these truths, Paul states that everything we do as Christians is for nothing. It's meaningless. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, um, Paul says, And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. The resurrection is necessary. And, if, and in verse 17, he says, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The importance of the resurrection, I think, can often be lost. We like to um, focus on the cross, um, and while the cross is a beautiful thing, the atoning work of Christ, um, we, we tend to sort of neglect the resurrection. Maybe you hear it in a song here and there, or um, you celebrate it on Easter, but the resurrection is so central um, to our salvation and to the growing of our faith and hope, obviously. So without the resurrection, we can't see Christ as Savior and as King. It's a, it would be a lie, because he would have lied in his uh, prophetic words. In Romans 10, verse 9, Paul clearly affirms the necessity of this belief in the resurrection. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we must believe in the resurrection which means we should meditate on the resurrection. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's huge. Huge. So we confess that he's Lord and believe in his resurrection. Now, if you're not talking about his resurrection with others, then there's an issue. If you're not meditating on his resurrection, then there's an issue. Um, Paul's clear here that it's an essential part of the gospel. And like I said, I while I don't think we forget it, I don't think that we meditate enough. And I know that I, I see that. I was convicted of that um, in studying these verses this week. Wow, do I meditate on the resurrection? Do I meditate on what that means? So Christ was raised up and given glory. And we know that from the writer of the book of Acts that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. The fact that he's glorified and brought next to the Father illustrates his value and worth and also his deity. This, in turn, should affect how we view and understand his sacrifice. Because Christ is treasured and glorified by the Father, we should, in turn, recognize his immeasurable worth 
and how amazing his atoning sacrifice truly is. His sacrifice alone could atone. We needed the God-man in order for atonement to occur for us. George Whitfield um, was an English minister during the 18th century. He helped to usher in the Great Awakening uh, in the American colonies during that time. And uh, I know Herb talked about him a little bit, um, I believe, in his first message. And I was reading about him this past week, and I was just convicted hearing about how dedicated he was to the gospel, to the message of the resurrection, um, talking about God's plan for redeeming a people, holding fast to God's sovereignty and all those things. And um, in his writings, he states that Christ was resurrected to fulfill his prophetic claims. When he's, when he, in this writing, um, he's talking about Christ's resurrection and the power of the resurrection, I believe is what uh, it's titled. He, said, he states that Christ was resurrected to fulfill his own prophetic claims for the justification of sinners and to assure the resurrection of our own bodies one day. So we see that, that Christ goes up to glory after resurrection and is glorified with the Father. And he's saying that, that that alludes to the promise for us as believers one day. The wisdom of Whitfield was directly influenced by his love, passion, and zeal for the gospel message. And I think that when I look at his life, and they said um, that he spent more hours, typically um, when he was out evangelizing, he would spend more hours preaching than he would sleeping. Um, and th- just the idea of us in our daily lives, how often do we care about the gospel enough to share it with one person, to spend 10 minutes during our day to have a conversation um, that's focused on Christ, that's talking about the resurrection um, we, we allow those moments to slip by consistently, and I know that I have um, as well. And uh, it, it's wild that these men of God couldn't, didn't want to waste a second. They spent more time awake preaching the gospel than, than they did sleeping. Um, it, it's a very convicting thought, and I think it should convict us as believers because in the culture today, um, it's so easy to get wrapped up in love of self and even within the church, we cater to love of self. And um, I just ask that you think about that. Think of areas where we need to repent of. Because um, this, this love of the gospel, this thing that saved us, should spur us on. We shouldn't be hindered by our sin in that way when we recognize what Christ has done to change us. So as we look at the end of this text, in verse 21... Peter's finishing the section of Scripture the same way he starts the paragraph in verse 13. In verse 13, he says we're to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought. And and here in verse 21, we're told that Jesus has accomplished all that was necessary for us to set our faith and hope in God. Praise God, it's been done. Now, let us live holy and reverent lives to honor our Lord. Let us grow in faith and hope. So looking at, at that text and how it ends, let me go back to First Peter. Um, we see that who through him, we, we, through Christ, are believers in God, who raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, what, what does that really mean, so that your faith and hope are in God? Um, I, I think we know what faith and hope are for us as Christians. But, but what it's pointing to is that our faith and hope in God 
are because of what Christ does. It's a, again, I, <laughs> when I was reading this, I was like, you know, God, I want you to like help me come up with a cool spin on this because it feels too um, in your face, easy. Yeah, I read this, I get it. But the depth of truth and something that I've learned just from discussions uh, with brothers about simple truths that God gives us, we often overlook as Christians. So the idea that our faith and hope is because of Christ, it, it, you, could, you could hear that, it could go in one ear, out the other, gotcha, AJ, yeah, we, we get it. I've known that for a while now. Yippee skippy. But the, the thing is, does it change you? Does, that, does knowing that change you? It needs to change you because if, you're, if you have the Holy Spirit and you recognize that this, this heart of stone was taken out and you're given a heart of flesh, that, there has to be a difference um, in your life. So as we think about the text today, I want you to be encouraged by the plan and work of God. We learn that Christ was foreknown by God, he was made known in history, and he was revealed to all those that believe. Do these simple truths stir your heart to grow in thankfulness, in faith, in hope, and in love? They should. So in closing, I ask, are you spiritually invigorated by the truth of the resurrection? Does it stir your affections to know that Christ overcame death for you? Are you growing in faith and hope? Or have you become stagnant? I would ask that you know, if you were here for the past uh, couple weeks, that you would be motivated um, by the messages that we heard from Chase and Herb, um, just a call to holiness, a, a call to obedience. And if you have become stagnant, I ask that you pursue the word, pursue obedience to Christ, pursue a faith that is founded on the unmovable sovereign plans and work of God, because that's the only thing that's going to last and all of these other things that you're spending your time wasting, uh, wasting away this life, um, it, it's, it's really, <laughs> I think in retrospect, I just look at the past five years and the, the hours and hours I've wasted on mindless activity. Um, and then a truth like this hits me, and I'm just like, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And that, that should convict us every day, every wasted moment that we're not glorifying God. So in closing, I want to end with, with a verse that uh, changed me in recognizing that, that we're chosen, that, that there was a plan in place, that God accomplishes his plan, and uh, that, we, that we, despite all of our flaws and being undeserving, that God still chooses us. Um, it's from Ephesians 1, 4. It says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We should praise God for his eternal plan that resulted in the redemption of undeserving sinners like us. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the gospel truth. I thank you for your redeeming plan the way you've worked it in history. And I just thank you for working in my heart even today. Uh, it's making me emotional thinking about how powerful you are to save a sinner like myself. Lord, I pray that, that that same passion and zeal that we all felt the moment that you saved us, the moment we realized that 
that we'd received eternal life, that you had actually had a plan, that you had um, chosen us beforehand, that you had worked all this out and we could look back and see your sovereign work and how you orchestrated all of it. I pray that that zeal would be, would be lit, that that zeal would be um, furthered, that, that we would take this message tonight, these simple truths that we see in Scripture, and I pray that, pray that we would apply them, God, that we would take this and it would actually be real to us. Pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would make these things real, that you would change our hearts, that you would bring us to repentance, and that if someone here does not know your gospel, does not understand that faith in Christ, repentance of our sins is the only way that we can uh, receive true salvation, God, I pray that you would bring them to that place, that they would seek you out, God. I pray that you would change their hearts and change all of our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.